Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, brought to you by Future of Frogmen, a nonprofit organization working to protect the ocean. I'm John Sherburn, producer for the show, and today's host is Dr. Colleen Bielitz. Today's episode features Dr. Emma Cross, assistant professor of coastal and marine science at Southern Connecticut University. Emma has traveled the world researching and is now building her own climate change ecology research lab, where her research also involves looking at innovative ways to mitigate climate change whilst also sustainably feeding the human population. For more information about Future Frogman, please check out our website at futurefrogman.org and look for us on social media at Future Frogman. Let's get into it. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Blue Earth Podcast, which is part of Future Frogmen, a nonprofit fostering future leaders to protect the ocean. I'm your host, Dr. Colleen Bielitz. As we dive into season two, we will be listening to different voices of ocean stewards. Those include students, advocates, researchers, and people developing blue economy businesses and initiatives. Today, our guest is Dr. Emma Cross, a marine biologist whose main focus is researching how climate change affects marine organisms. Welcome, Dr. Cross. We're grateful to have you here. Hello, Colleen. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Oh, thank you. I find that our guests always have some kind of a connection to the ocean that launched their path forward. And I'd like our listeners to hear about the path that you took and how it led you to be a marine biologist, which I believe began when you were just five years old on the south coast of the UK. But before we start, I also wanted to make sure that you include your grandmother, because I know that she played a specific role as well. So do you mind talking to us a little bit about that, Emma? Yes, of course. Um, So my love of marine biology really began, as you say, when I was five years old. Um, I used to go to the south coast of the UK every year with my family, and I spent majority of my summer holiday um, playing around in the intertidal rock pools. And I would always say to my parents, you know, what is this little animal or critter and what was this? And my parents were just like, she really does love these tide pools. And one day I said to my parents, um, you know, what is um, someone who grows up to be someone who researches the ocean? And my parents were like, that's a marine biologist. And ever since that day, I've always had that in my brain that I wanted to be a marine biologist. Um, And also I always loved science and that really came from my grandma who used to be a chemistry teacher and she used to always buy me lots of science uh, games and activities for all my Christmas and birthday gifts and I always used to love that and that was really something that my grandma and I had this bond over was our love of science. So yeah, I think those two uh, parts of my childhood really Um, was catalyst for my love of marine biology and science in general. Yeah. And isn't it, it, it's really incredible how an adult in your life can influence you in a specific way and how sometimes when you have that spark of an interest as a child, like you said, at five years old, you knew that that was pretty much what you wanted to do. So if we could pivot and talk about, you went to school to get your bachelor's degree and you developed an interest in extreme environments. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, for sure. So, um, yeah, so unlike most people who uh, want to be a marine biologist at five years old, I actually uh, did pursue that. And I then decided I wanted to do a bachelor's degree in marine biology. So um, I am British and over in the UK, um, you can do specific uh, bachelor's degrees. So uh, my whole bachelor's degree was in 
marine biology. So every class I took pretty much uh, was all centered around marine biology. And I loved all of my courses, but the ones that really um, sort of piqued my interest really were the ones about the extreme environments. So deep sea ecology and also polar environments. So it really was, um, yeah, those sort of two classes that um, really piqued my interest. Um, and that sort of carried me on um, to sort of where my research began. And when we talk about extreme environments, uh, maybe you could just touch upon what is meant by extreme, like when you're studying extreme environments. Yes, for sure. So um, just sort of those environments that um, are sort of at the end of their tolerance. So with the deep sea, um, in those very, very deep depths, we are very far away from sunlight and where the majority of life in our ocean is. Um, so it really is um, a miracle, really, that we do have uh, life down in our deep sea. So that really interested me that we could have life on our planet in these really deep, depths so far away from sunlight and the majority of our uh, ocean life and also similar to that in our polar regions you know they really are at the extreme end of the temperature scale so um, particularly in the Antarctic um, you know they really have all of their temperatures are based around zero degrees celsius so I really was uh, fascinated again by how life could exist in those extremes in terms of temperature so yeah and and life does exist in those extremes which is amazing we always think about how much we need the sun but there's creatures that live deep below in these depths of the ocean and extreme water pressure as well and exactly. you know and yet they thrive in these environments and the same goes for the extreme cold and i often think about uh, the penguins that, uh, that, especially the emperor penguins and the extreme cold that they face, and yet they still manage to survive. And it is really a miracle and just goes to show how amazing this planet is that we can have all of this life living in all of these different types of environments. For sure. And, you know, that kind of takes me uh, to, uh, let's talk a little bit about your master's research. I know that you worked with Professor Paul Tyler studying shellfish. Yeah. So what do you love about being in this research, uh, you know, field? And what did you love about your master's research? And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, my love of um, extreme environments sort of uh, took me to Professor Paul Tyler's office one day. And I was just talking to him saying I really wanted to get involved in some research. And I was really interested in doing my master's research um, in either deep sea ecology or um, Antarctic biology. And so um, he had a project for me, which uh, was all based around the reproductive biology of the Antarctic limpet. Um, and I was thrilled to be offered that master's project, uh, which did involve lots and lots of lab work, um, which I absolutely loved. It was the first experience for me uh, where I had sort of my own research project. Everything was um, all down to me. It was my responsibility every day to come in and do all of this histology work. And yeah, I really just loved that responsibility of having a research project that was my own. And also that I was discovering something new in our world that nobody else knew. So I really just love that sort of element of, yeah, my sort of first steps into research, which was just having a project that was my own and also researching something that no one else in the world 
uh, knew the answer to. So, yeah. I, I have to say that is the amazing part of being a researcher is having that ability to further science sure. and to further our, our understanding of many different things. And now you did research for quite a while. And I think you got to a point where you basically needed a break. Mm -hmm. And then you took a job working as a marine ecologist and focused on penguin life history in Cambridge. Is that correct? Yes. At the end um, of my master's, I was super stressed out. Uh, I was a workaholic and I was <laughs> like, I love marine science, but I don't want to do academia. I really just want to have a nine to five job. I just want to work in the industry and just have my evenings and weekends free. So after I finished my master's research, I um, was looking into any sort of relevant marine science job around the UK. And I was really fortunate uh, to be offered the position of marine ecologist at the British Antarctic Survey for a one-year position. And that was all centered around um, researching about penguin life history. And it was a super cool job. It was a really great job for me to do straight out of my master's. Um, and it was really fascinating. I was learning some really cool stuff, but it was all computer-based work. So um, I really missed having that sort of learning with my hands and doing lab work, doing field work, and really like gathering my own data to analyze. It very much was analyzing data that other researchers had collected. And so that was the part that I uh, really missed about research was the lab work and the field work and gathering my own data. And it was about probably uh, two to three months into uh, this job that I really realized that uh, research and academia is what I wanted to do. <laughs> and it was actually that I just needed a break from my master's. I just needed um, some time to decompress uh, my master's degree and then I was ready to take on research for a career. Yeah. And I have to say that, you know, when you go for your bachelor's and then into your master's degree and you're putting all that time and effort into research, like you said, oftentimes we become workaholics, right? And it's something that we love and we're passionate about. But when you spend all of that time doing it, it's good to take that mental break and step into something else. Then it gives you that deeper appreciation and um, you mentioned that you were English uh, and that uh, when you were looking for your PhD, for example, that was a little different than in the United States. So maybe you could tell us about that. And I believe you have a never give up story that you'd like to share. Yeah, for sure. So um, when I decided that um, yeah, academia uh, was the route for me, um, I did start looking for PhD projects. And as you say, it's different um, in the UK to the US. And so the sort of uh, typical way to find a PhD in the UK is that there are advertised PhD projects. And um, so you go and you find a specific PhD project um, that you find interesting and that you would like to apply for. Um, and then you apply for that specific project. So you're not applying for a PhD program um, like over here in the United States. You're applying for a specific PhD project. So I found one um, that was all about environmental change impacts on brachiopods. And that was with still with the British Antarctic Survey and also with the University of Cambridge. So I applied for this position. And um, as I was already at the British Antarctic Survey, lots of my peers were telling me how I had a really great shot of getting it. You know, I'm a technically an internal candidate, if that's what you want to call it. 
um, and I never believed them. But um, when I didn't get my PhD, so it was offered to another candidate originally, um, I was devastated. I really, um, it was a really great experience for me because it really made me um, understand and really have an appreciation for how much I really wanted to do that specific PhD project. Um, and I also think that getting rejection um, in life is a good thing in a way, because I think that you do learn a lot about yourself. You also learn a lot um, yeah, to appreciate everything that you do have. And so for me, um, it was sort of the first big rejection I had in life. And it really just told me um, it wasn't that nothing that I did. The other candidate just had uh, more specific experience that the PhD project required. Um, so I knew that it was nothing that I did myself not to get the position. Um, and then the other candidate actually decided not to take the PhD project. And then uh, the PhD was offered to me a week later. And I was absolutely thrilled, took it straight away. And yeah, I really, uh, throughout my whole PhD experience, always reminded myself of that week where I didn't get the PhD and just reminded myself how much I really wanted it. And that really helped me uh, in, during those tricky times in your PhD uh, process when things aren't going your way. It just reminded me my love of the topic. Yeah, well, that's for sure. I have to say it's a story of resilience, right? Because when you see that you don't have it and you're like, okay, but I really wanted it. And now you have this big desire. And once you were offered it, because fate often steps in that way and sure. you know, brings things to us that we do want, uh, you had that deep appreciation for it. And yeah. let's face it, when you're working towards your PhD, it is, a, it is quite the process and uh, it's, it's a hard road. So I was glad that you had that story to share, yeah. that never give up story. And I believe then that took you to study off the coast of New Zealand, is that correct? Where you did research um, and you did four months of scuba diving and conducting experiments by yourself um, at the Otago Research Labs. Am I on the right track here? That is correct, yeah. Okay, well, Future Frogman has many divers listening. So if you could tell us what it was like doing these experiments and maybe also touch on, I'm often fascinated how coasts are different. So how our coast here in the United States is different than the UK and here and now you can tell us also how the New Zealand coast is uh, different and how it is its own unique environment. Can you touch upon that a little bit? Yes, for sure. So um, I should say I was very, very fortunate and um, to get four months fieldwork experience as part of my PhD project. Um, and that was very early on um, into my PhD. I think it was about three or four months uh, into my PhD experience. And I went over to New Zealand with my two PhD supervisors, Professor Lloyd Peck and Professor Liz Harper. And we had a great time doing lots of uh, scuba diving where we would um, go to different environments around New Zealand to collect brachiopods. And um, so for myself, I did all of my uh, scuba diving training in the UK, which is beautiful, but also the visibility isn't great, if I'm honest. And so I remember specifically that um, when I learned to do my, or when I was doing my paddy open water, I did it in a lake. And I remember um, when we were doing our training that there was a scramble to get into this lake, to be the first group to get in there, 
to try and get the best visibility as possible. Because as soon as you have all of these trainees in there, everyone is kicking up all the silt and you can't see anything. Mm. I remember very specifically that my dive instructor was really close to my face and telling me to take off my mask to do that uh, part of the um, qualification. And I just remember barely seeing him and just shaking my head. (laughs) Like, I'm not taking my mask off. I can't see anything right now. Um, So I definitely think um, learning to dive in uh, treacherous conditions definitely uh, made me a better scuba diver. And then when I did go uh, to New Zealand and had these beautiful clear waters, you know, it very much was like, whoa, what is this? This is definitely what diving is all about. So I definitely think in comparison to the UK and and New Zealand, in terms of diving was definitely the visibility was a lot better. Um, Also, um, one of the dive sites was in the Fordlands in New Zealand, um, where we had this layer of fresh water um, above the salt water. And my uh, scuba diving buddy was my supervisor, Professor Lopet. And um, no one told me that when fresh water and salt water mix, it looks a bit like oil in water, i.e. it looks sort of really sort of cloudy. And so when we um, dropped into the water, I couldn't see anything. And it was really blurry. And I remember just being like, oh, there's something in my mask. And I kept doing lots of um, all of the uh, ways to clear your mask. I was like, I really can't see anything. I could sort of see these figurines of, yeah, my diving buddy. And we also had uh, two other divers with us for the collection. And I could just see these very blurry figurines just dropping down and sort of going over uh, to this cliff face that we were trying to get to. And I was like, I can't see anything. And then all of a sudden, about six meters down, I could just see so much. And I remember at the end of the dive, Um, I did um, say, I was like, I didn't understand. Like I couldn't see anything for so long. I was really worried. I think I used up a lot of air. So that dive was quite a short dive. Um, And then, um, yeah, my supervisor was like, oh yeah, that's when fresh water and salt water mixed together at that top layer. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, Would have been nice to have known that beforehand. (laughs) So yeah, that's definitely a funny story um, I have with my dive experience um, over in New Zealand was how I was like, I couldn't see anything. But no, it was a really beautiful dive site because it was just this massive uh, cliff wall which had an abundance of life on it. And we were over at the wall and we were just trying to find um, these particular brachiopod species uh, which we were collecting in our dive bags. And I just remember uh, taking a moment and really taking in sort of this amazing wall of life and then sort of a Mm. 360 turn and just being like there was nothing around the rest of me just on this wall and also looking down as well and just seeing this sort of black abyss so that we couldn't see um, the sea floor so that also was yeah a fascinating experience for me. Yeah that sounds definitely like something I would like to try once I believe and then <laughs> savor the experience and then be out yeah. of there. <laughs> Because I I don't do well with not being able to see what's around me. Yeah. Um, but uh, I know when you were in New Zealand, uh, you also went to a number of museums and convinced people to provide you with the brachiopod shells. And for our listeners who don't know, there's different types of brachiopods 
many are extinct. I mean, there's fossils that are over 270 million years old. These have been, these have been around a long time, but there's still brachiopods still alive today. And they look very similar to bivalves, but the brachiopods tend to have a symmetrical shell. So can you tell us a little bit about what you did with the shells that you collected from these museums and what did you learn? For sure, yeah. So another part of my experience in New Zealand um, was going to lots of different museums and sort of convincing these curators to um, provide me with uh, brachiopod shells for further research back in the UK. And I was looking at samples going back 120 years and so, you know, you really can't get these samples anymore from 1900. So, you know, the samples they had in the museum was a finite sample. And so I really learned some negotiation skills, um, <laughs> really just to say, you know, if I could just have a couple of shells, you know, I'm going to further our research into these fascinating organisms. Um, and, you know, I had better experiences of getting um, some samples in some places than others. Also, some samples obviously had a lot more to choose from than others. Obviously, they, they were easier to convince those curators. Um, but yes, I managed to get a really unique um, sample set of uh, the same brachiopod species from one particular site in New Zealand every decade going back to 1900. So it really was a very unique, very rare um, sample that I was able to get. And then I brought that back over to Cambridge where I did lots of further analysis with the shells. And this is destructive analysis in, in one sense. And um, so one half of the shell, I looked at their shell surfaces and that was to investigate any shell dissolution. And to do that, we have to cover the shells in a very thin layer of gold. And then we put the shells in a fascinating piece of equipment called a scanning electron microscope. And what this is, is just essentially a fancy microscope that you're able to get a very high magnification, a really zoomed in image of the outside of the brachiopod shell to be able to investigate any shell dissolution. And then the other half of the shell um, I put in um, this sort of chemical called resin, which sort of makes it look like it's in an ice block. And then I cut the brachiopod in half, the shell in half, sorry. And then I polished that cross section of the shell and then did lots of analysis again on the scanning electron microscope to look at the shell thickness and also on um, an iron probe to look at the chemical analysis as well. So what I was um, looking at with these samples was to see if recent past environmental change had affected these brachiopod shells. And this was a really unique study, uh, which really did sort of further our research into climate change effects on marine calcifiers, because lots of experiments and experiments that I do as well, looks at sort of future conditions and those effects on the brachiopod shells. Whereas I was also looking at this sample set to look at recent past change and how that has already affected the shells. So it was sort of a novel approach to sort of further our understanding into environmental change impacts to marine calcifiers. Excellent. Now, did this have, uh, I 
believe that you went on to do some experimental research on Antarctic brachiopods in Cambridge under Professor Lloyd Peck and Professor Liz Harper for seven months. Yes, that's correct. Yes. So um, as well as the New Zealand brachiopods, I also looked at the Antarctic brachiopod as well. And um, so unfortunately, I didn't get to go to the Antarctic myself. But um, these specimens were brought back over to Cambridge, uh, where the British Antarctic Survey is based. And I ran a seven month experiment um, investigating future ocean acidification and warming impacts on the Antarctic brachiopod shells. And again, I looked at various um, aspects of their shells. And I actually found that the Antarctic brachiopod is under threat from ocean acidification in the sense of it does um, have very extensive shell dissolution under okay. ocean acidification and warming conditions predicted for the end of the century. However, this brachiopod is actually able to increase the thickness of their shell when they do have extensive shell dissolution. So this was a really cool aspect of my research um, because it was essentially the only aspect of their shell that changed. So this is also um, another amazing experience that I've had with research is learning that every data point or every sort of trend or not trend that you find is a trend. So you don't always have to find a difference um, for your data to be valid. Every data point is valid. Um, so lots of the aspects of the shells that I was investigating all stayed the same. And at first, mm. as an early PhD student, this was quite tricky for me uh, to really get my head around. I was thinking, you know, all oh, my experiments are failing. You know, we're expecting to see, um, you know, these brachiopods, they have such a large shell to how much animal tissue they have. So we were really expecting them to be very vulnerable um, and having pretty much all of their aspects of their shells being affected by ocean acidification. And that really wasn't the case. We actually found that the Antarctic brachiopods and the New Zealand brachiopods are very resilient to future environmental change in terms of their shells. So they are under threat in terms of shell dissolution, but they're able to upregulate shell production and produce a thicker shell. Hmm. Yeah, that is fascinating. It does go to show how when conditions change that different types of life forms can adapt. Some cannot, but some can in certain ways to try and protect themselves. Definitely. And uh, I loved hearing about your research, Emma. And now let's uh, move ahead a little bit further. I know you finished your PhD and you had something very interesting happen because you, I believe, interviewed at UConn Avery Point here in the United States and you were also going for something at the University of Durham in the UK in 2017. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know, what happened and the position that you ended up going for? Yes, for sure. So once I finished my PhD, uh, I was very fortunate to get a short-term uh, postdoc position, um, again, at the University of Cambridge and the British Antarctic Survey for nine months. And this was uh, really great for me to um, have that at the end of my PhD, because then it allowed me uh, to sort of figure out what I was going to do next. 
And so I decided um, that I still wanted to be in research. I had a very positive PhD experience, loved everything about it. And so I was looking for um, postdoc positions and, and also postdoc fellowships as well. So um, after you finish your PhD, if you want to stay in academia and you want to go down the postdoc route, you can either apply for specific postdoc positions in labs that are advertised, or you can apply for postdoc fellowships uh, where it's more of a broader call. So you come up with a project yourself and lots of um, scientists and sometimes you're even up against the arts as well. So the fellowship um, route is a lot more general of who's applying. So I was, um, you know, applying for absolutely everything that I possibly could. And <laughs> I was very fortunate to get an interview at uh, Yukon Avery Point with uh, Dr. Hannes Bauman um, to be a postdoc in his fish ecology lab. And I also had an interview with the University of Durham in the UK uh, to do a postdoc fellowship with them as well. And I was very fortunate to be offered both positions and I decided to take the postdoc position um, over here in the US at UConn um, because that project really broadened my horizons um, to incorporate fish and also hypoxia into my research. So the fellowship I would have done at the University of Durham was very much um, on questions that came out of my PhD and post first postdoc position. Um, so that was very much carrying on my brachiopod research. So I Great. decided to yeah, take the position at UConn to broaden my research horizons to include fish and also include another multi-stressor, which is hypoxia. Yeah, so let's... Um... Let's talk about that. I love that you went and switched into something new, like you said, to expand your knowledge. And so now you're going to Yukon Avery Point to study fish and the effects of ocean warming and hypoxia. And for our listeners who are not familiar with the term hypoxia in ocean and freshwater environments, right? The term hypoxia refers to lower depleted oxygen in a water body. And that lower depleted oxygen leads to what are called dead zones. And this is regions where life cannot be sustained. And I like that you made that jump from shellfish to fish and came to the United States. Uh, Dr. Cross, we're lucky to have you here. Uh, can you tell us now a little bit about that research that you did at UConn Avery Point? Because I believe that you had three different experiments that you ran and things that you looked at there. And I think our listeners would be interested to know, you know what came out of that. Yes, for sure. So yeah, I came over to the US and I was a postdoc in Dr. Hannes Bauman's lab, which focuses all on um, fish, marine fish, and the effects of ocean acidification, ocean warming, and hypoxia um, on fish. So um, one of my experiments was looking at the Atlantic silver side, and I was looking at how fluctuating environments affect the early life stages, which is the embryo stage and the larvae stage of their life cycle. And this experiment was really, really cool um, for many different aspects. But one of the aspects that I found really interesting for me was that the uh, field site of where we collected these uh, fascinating organisms 
was only 15 minutes away from the lab. So this was a new experience for me. Um, you know, my previous research focused on New Zealand and Antarctic specimens, um, which were far away from my lab. And so this was a really cool experience for me um, to, you know, drive 15 minutes in the Yukon truck to go to our field site and collect our organisms and bring them straight back to the lab. And what I did with my experiments was to further our understanding of climate change impacts on marine fish by placing them in fluctuating environments. So marine organisms that live in coastal environments already live in fluctuating environments. So on a daily scale, their um, pH and dissolved oxygen conditions do fluctuate. And so these organisms, even though temporary, do already experience pH conditions that are predicted for the end of the century. So therefore, in typical traditional experiments, when you normally place these organisms in static or stable environments, you could argue that that is actually a stress on these organisms because that is actually not what they experience in their natural environment. So what this experiment was doing was seeing if fluctuating environments do provide a physiological refuge for these organisms or if it stresses the organisms out. And I actually found that when the fish were placed in fluctuating environments, their survival improved and also their growth improved as well. Hmm. Um, so essentially this was just furthering our research uh, to make it more complicated and also <laughs> just make it more um, environmentally relevant. Because that's always a thing with uh, lab experiments is that you are taking the organisms away from their natural environment. So it's always important to try and make your lab experiments reflect their natural environment as much as possible to make your research be environmentally relevant. Yeah, um, can I just jump in here real quick, um, Emma? A point you and I had spoken about, and I also have had the same conversation with the provost at Southern, who is also a marine biologist, is the fact that many people think that you need sophisticated equipment to do research experience. And actually you can do cool experiments with materials you can find at your local hardware store. Uh, is that correct? Yes, that is very correct. So um, yeah, throughout all of my um, experimental experience so far, yes, it's always, um, an aspect of using your local hardware to uh, create your um, experimental uh, setup. And so, yeah, I think it's just really important uh, to relay that you can do really cool research on a budget and you can also do really cool research on materials that you can get at your local hardware store. So I think lots of times uh, young researchers do get a bit intimidated by the sciences in thinking that you need to have all of this really sophisticated equipment. And that isn't the case really. Um, you know, you can do um, experiments in really sophisticated um, setups and that's great, but you can also do science on a budget where yeah, you can build everything you know, from trash cans to plastic boxes, um, you know, you really can build an experimental setup and do science that is impactful. Yeah, no, I agree. And I've been showing my six-year-old son some of the different types of research experiments that can be done. 
And you and I have also had some great conversations about saying yes to opportunities because they definitely lead you on a path that you're meant to be, I feel. And now you're doing climate change studies at Southern Connecticut State University. And you're part of Project Blue Hub, which has led to the launch of the Long Island Sound Ocean Cluster. So if you could tell our listeners a little bit about the projects that you're working on and how everything you've studied has kind of come together at this place in time. For sure, yes. Um, so now I'm an assistant professor at Southern Connecticut State University. And here um, I am part of Project Blue. And one of the initiatives of Project Blue um, is to strengthen links between academia and the aquaculture industry. And so uh, what I'm doing, one of my uh, projects at the moment, is working with ocean farmers at Cottage City Oysters, which is an aquaculture company based off of Martha's Vineyard. And what we're doing is researching about regenerative ocean farming and how it can be a mitigation strategy against climate change. And what re regenerative ocean farming is, is where you grow shellfish and seaweed in the same ocean farm. And um, because the seaweed has a buffering capacity where it raises the pH and the dissolved oxygen in the seawater, and that can benefit the farmed shellfish by enhancing their production of their shell. And also the shellfish, as they are filter feeders, they do um, process the water column and make it clearer by um, processing all of the particulates and organic matter in the water column. And that um, makes the water column clearer. So therefore sunlight can penetrate to deeper depths for the seaweed to grow abundantly. And so what we're doing with Cottage City Oysters is looking at how regenerative ocean farming impacts the shellfish and also how this type of farming does increase local biodiversity. And we're doing this to be able to generate an eco-label for sustainable aquaculture products. So this project uh, for me personally is super exciting um, because all of my research to date has all focused on climate change impacts on marine organisms. And now I'm sort of branching out a little bit um, to sort of see about how we can use our oceans to mitigate climate change and also feed the human population at the same time as well, because this is a sustainable aquaculture technique that is really up and coming. Yeah, and I love hearing about what you're doing and that research I know is so important. So I thank you for that, Dr. Cross. Now here at Future Frogmen, we work to foster future leaders to protect our oceans. And I always like to end the show with a message of hope. So what can we do to improve ocean health? And can you provide uh, me and our listeners with some hope for the future of our blue earth? For sure. I think it's really important for us as individuals just to be aware of our everyday lifestyle and also how that does impact the ocean environment, even if we don't live right by the ocean. So I think it's really important for individuals to take ownership and how our lifestyle can affect our oceans and also be aware that we can make a difference on an individual basis. So I think it's really important just to think about, you know, 
if we can drive one less journey a week, if we can take one less plane journey a year, just all of these little things all adds up. Um, so I think everyone can play their part in improving ocean health. Um, and I also think that there is hope. And I think that it's always important to know that there is hope for our future oceans. So uh, one thing to be aware of is that future climate change um, is going to have winners and losers in terms of marine organisms. So some organisms are going to benefit from it, but some organisms are going to be um, detrimented by future uh, ocean acidification, ocean warming, hypoxia, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, however, we do have the ability to improve ocean health. Um, so I guess part of my research is looking at how regenerative ocean farming is going to provide hope for the future for our blue earth in terms of feeding the human population and also mitigating climate change as well. So there is always hope and us as individuals can also contribute to improving ocean health. Definitely, our actions can improve ocean health. We just have to be aware of what we're doing and then take those necessary steps to, as you said, stop doing some things, for example, like taking unnecessary drives or paying attention to you know, what we're using and consuming. Yeah. So I thank you for that message, uh, Dr. Emma Cross, and thank you for being on our show today. Thank you. And everyone listening, please keep in mind that while we have a lot to do, there is still hope for us as we work towards protecting our oceans. It's listeners like you, our ocean stewards and our citizen scientists. You are the ones helping us make a difference. If there is a topic you would like for us to touch upon, or if there's a guest speaker you would like us to have on the show, please feel free to contact us at info at futurefrogmen.org or visit our website. So thank you for joining us today and please spread the word as we work to improve ocean health by deepening the connection between people and nature. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. If you like what you heard today, you can check us out on social media at Future Frogmen or at our website at futurefrogmen.org. And remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador.